Out of the Ice, Part 2, Hikes. Mother could never quite adjust to living life again, her second time. What? Mother? Oh, who, me? William? For a few years I was a cultivator of crop rows on my own small piece of our land, and then father died, but he left me the big farm free from debt and an excellent farm manager for all its many acres, and an orchard, a good house, a substantial barn. So for more than six years, I took to wandering through the forests and plains of our new country and the great American wilderness. I trekked on foot, on horse, and small watercraft through its north, east, and south, so many images from those trekking times. A fragrant hillside in the spring, I found a dead panther that measured seven and one half feet, nose to end of tail. I tramped a less than agreeable march through rain and mud, then encamped in an old Indian stick lodge, a dry and comfortable shelter I roasted and ate venison, not having previously tasted a morsel of food the entire day, and then lay myself down on willow boughs to a comfortable night's rest, feeling fully repaid for the toil and pain of the day. I stay with some Indians, and we regale on rattlesnakes. The natives place a small forked stick over a snake's head and then dangle a piece of leather near its front fangs, which it bites. They then pull back several times with great force and the fangs of the snake are torn out. They then cook the snake as we do eels and their flesh is extremely sweet and white. Speckle Mountain in Maine province Lost on a winter walk with Sniffer, the giant dog my daughter named. He and I huddled together. No closed shelter, but a fire. No snow or ice, but frigid air. So Sniffer and I twitched and rolled and jumped and wrestled over tinkling frozen brush to stay warm and alive. I saw a large bird eating bees. I killed this bird, opened its beak, from which I took 171 bees and laid them in a, on a blanket in the sun. And to my great surprise, 54 of those bees returned to life, licked themselves clean, and joyfully went back to the hive where they surely told their companions a tale of adventure and escape as they believed no one had ever happened before. An aboriginal told me in English and gesture, tree watching you, 
You watch tree. You and tree speak to each other. No words, but you feel him pumping, growing. You feel him peaceful. When you sleep, you dream something. Tree and grass, same thing. Near a little town named Dank Swamp in South Carolina, I heard a man admonish a minister, Sir, we pay you a genteel salary to read to us the prayers of the liturgy and to explain to us such parts of the gospel as the church directs. But, sir, we do not want you to tell us what we are supposed to do with our Negroes. Few of us from, few of us from the northern colonies ever thought with compassion of the showers of sweat and tears which from the bodies of Africans were daily dropping to moisten the ground. There are a number of black African defendants African descendants working here at the Institute, the facilities is supported by the United States military, by an international medical group, and by three large digital businesses. It is dedicated to the long-lived and the life extended and to what it calls the grand experiment. I'm reading a document, quote, Mr. William White presents as a Caucasian male of approximate early middle age, though his hair is nearly white. He is severely underweight, confused, grateful, sometimes addled or depressed. His body shows the effects of long confinement with very little motion, but preliminary scan results are surprisingly normal. Key words for Mr. White Life extension, aging stasis, synapse enhancement, potential global citizen, synth, ambulatory brain. What has surprised me most is being told that the year I was freed from the ice. I was repeatedly told that date, 2030, but I could not really credit it until I was shown the various methods and devices that allow for access to the system which provides both present information and access to the past. I've seen old images of Chester, Massachusetts, which is the new name of where I grew up. My family's gone. It's land covered now by a collection of shops and businesses. I have a digital copy of a daguerreotype of our house that was taken about 1845. Shortly after the collection of family letters and notes was found in an old sealed wooden container hidden near the back of the little under the roof space where my daughter used to play. She died in 1846 and her son was then living in Ohio before all trace of him was lost. I can see my wife's grave and headstone. Confusion, brain burbles. I work to remember, make notes, write poems, stories, memories, images, paper of a very smooth, very white finish, a pen, 
small and thin with a kind of black ink inside it, dry, does not need blotting, flows smoother and finer than the steel barrel pen that Betsy gave me for my birthday, my last birthday. Where are all my old journals? These days I label my new existence, write it down, lists of what is missing, lists of new physical items and new experiences and conceptions. Pens, smooth paper, fine white and gray cloth, tools for cleaning my teeth, a toilet full of water, well-made leather shoes and shoes made of a variety of other materials, heat through a wall, in the ice, it could feel warm and comfortable, like in a fireside bed with Betsy, little Abigail between us, under bearskin and wool. In the ice, a very long, deep sleep, my breath, my heart, my brain, very slowly ticking away. And what I remember most about arriving here is rolling out of dark, chilly blackness into a room, a, a room of people talking loudly, shaking hands, embracing one another. While in the ice, on some occasions, I saw water creatures, different sizes, that swam near me or that I bobbed past. The ice that encased me must have sometimes been floating in open water. In the ice, long times when nothing moved, not my brain, not my body, not my eyes. Very brief, alive moments as if waking from a watchful sleep beneath a tree or in a shelter. Drops of water on my lips, parted lips liquid on my teeth, one tooth gone, bump, a noise, movement, fish eyes. Abigail and Betsy will learn nothing of this, where I am, how I died. Did my journal fall in with me? Did it survive? I'm tired. Dead, tired, ice, cracks, groans, bobs, sinks. Me, petrified, mummified, turned to pottery. I've seen an image of my body about to be removed from the ice. I'm a creased and folded leaf encased in a frozen stream. Digity-doo shows me how to make a record of my words spoken aloud. Those words could also be made to appear in written form on either of my system screens and on my table if I'm wearing the eyeglasses. I've not yet been out of doors, but I am exploring, trekking now through terra incognita, like a land creature learning to live on water. My room brightens by electrical energy. Water comes to me through a metallic nozzle in a small room where there are also ways to wash myself by either standing up or sitting down in a deep indoor garden tub. 
There's another object from which I could easily spirit away my body waste. Stubby said to me, People here at the Institute claim that humans will soon be able to avoid death. I say not possible. Oh, perhaps death can be postponed. That's what they're doing here, but death will always be looking for us. Huh? That skinny gray crone. She claimed she was my friend. I'm Stubby's friend, she said. But I tell her we were only neighbors. We recognized each other and sometimes spoke. Hello, Stubby. Greetings, she whispered at me one day. Long time without seeing you. It's me, Stubbs, just checking on you. Again, not again, I said. Well, you moved away. Yes, I did, but only out past the edge of town. Look, I said to her, go away, don't stop here again. Oh, she said, next time perhaps you'll come with me. Oh, I doubt it. Stubby, the time will come. You and I will live together in a different kind of place and time. I speak almost entirely with doctors and with staff helpers. Stubby is frequently with me. He's very conversational. Also Juan and sometimes Matilda. I've seen a few other residents, but I've never really been alone with one. We listen while our attendants talk to each other, mostly about things I don't understand. On several occasions, other residents have said something to me quickly and quietly. One said, I have no idea how old I am. Another said, there are thoughts going through my head that are not mine. And one answered a question of mine by saying, well, I may not remember that. I have machine intelligence. Several of them said, I thought I was dead. These people, they seem unbalanced. Folks my uncle would have called natural fools. One night, Juan rolled me past a high-up institute window. Stop, I yelled, a window! Look, I could see outside. I saw faint and distant paths of light crisscrossing through trees. Autos, Juan called them, not stars. Autos. Days that allow no writing or reading or record making of any kind. I'm interviewed, tested, put to sleep, awakened for a test and for more questions. Blood removed, limbs manipulated, tubes and wires moved, removed or attached, blood added, X-ray. MRI, bone mending, new knee, new toes, new lenses and eyes, hearing bones, remade, abdominal abscess, stitches sewn into my body, a machine so my heartbeat will stay both slow and steady. I did refuse one thing. It was an added on skin patch for one of my ears.
Matilda has told me an old story. She says, it's from these mountains. Not too far from here, she said. There once lived, or maybe he's probably still around, a fella named Jack. And they say Jack once gave half of the food in his backpack to an old, run-down, hungry beggar who turned out to be some kind of a wizard. So he gave Jack a magic sack, said, Okay, Jack, you can look at anything and say, Wickety-whack into my sack, and that thing will end up in your sack. It worked. It worked good. Jack got food a nice rifle, a chicken house, and a bunch of hens. And he once saved a baby that was floating down the river in a basket. And one night, years later, old gray lady Death came for Jack, said it was time to go. And Jack looked at her, he says, uh-uh, wickety-whack into my sack. And Death was trapped. Next morning, they say, Jack climbed a real high tree and tied death in that sack to the tree. And after that, nobody died. They all lived happily, except those who were sick and those that got really old and feeble. One day in town, an old, old man crawled out of an alley, crept up to Jack and says, Hey! I hear tell you're the damn fool that tied up death. If that's true, please, please, you got to let her go. So Jack went home, climbed the tree, real slow, he wasn't too nimble by now, and let gray death out of the bag. Immediately a whole bunch of people died, but not Jack. Death never took Jack to punish him for what he had done. And William, the doctors and generals here at the Institute, Matilda says, they're still looking hard for that magic sack. Want to trap death for good. I remember as I lie in bed when a young woman, not my wife, sat on my lap in a friendly fashion. And I became aroused and my dangler began to grow. I did not know if she noticed it, but I was discomfited. These days I often think of my wife's body, not often in lovemaking, but in warm embrace. End of part two. One of the refurbished dogs here seems to have a perpetually active love muscle. 